Go ahead and be seated. Isaiah chapter 40 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, we'd sure like you to have a Bible to follow along with. And so men are coming up the aisles right now and these Bibles just wave to get their attention. They'll get one into your hands and and, uh, it'll be marked to where we're starting tonight for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. We remember as we began the second half, the second major division of the book of Isaiah last week, that um, in chapter 40, much of what happens the rest of the way, God is speaking to, uh, through Isaiah, to the children of uh, Judah, uh, the Jews in Judah and also in Jerusalem. And, uh, but a lot of what he says to them isn't specifically to the generation that he's speaking to. He is uh, warning them of the fact that they are, because of their sin and idolatry, going to go into captivity to the Babylonians ultimately. And uh, Jeremiah will later prophesy that they will spend 70 years in that captivity just as they did. But much of the rest of the book speaks to the Jews who are either in that Babylonian captivity toward the end of it and they're about to make their way back to Jerusalem. And God has given them in chapter 40, as we saw the first few verses of the chapter last week, the promise to the Jews that even though they're going to go into captivity to the Babylonians, that ultimately he will restore them back to the land, back to Jerusalem and back to Canaan. Now, you've got to put yourself in their shoes because here they are. They've blown it with God. I mean blown it with God. They have just deliberately sinned and and disrespected him in every way that they could. And now here they are. They know they're being chastened by God in the situation, the circumstances that they're in. And if you've ever been in that place, maybe not to the degree necessarily that they had, um, but whenever you've messed things up with God, sometimes you just think that, well, I can't really turn to God with any kind of confidence. So they don't have the confidence that Okay, I claim this promise. God said we're going back to Canaan. We're going to go back to Canaan. Sometimes you lack that boldness when you've messed up in the way that they have. And so, God, here they are. Their land is destroyed. Their homes are gone. Their families have been scattered. I mean, they just have made a mess of their life through their sin. They're certainly not the last group of people or individuals to do that. And so this is the place that they're in. And when they hear God speak to them, I'm not done with you. I made promises to you, even in your rebellion. I'm going to keep those promises. And I'm going to bring you back into the land and give you a second start. What it must have meant to their hearts. But at the same time that they're hearing these glorious promises, there can be the doubt that comes into your mind. And here they are, they're sitting in Babylon. Unbelievable, indescribable Babylon. Uh, Just the uh, uh, walls of Babylon, the gardens of Babylon were considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. Here they are caught in this. Babylon at this point in time has no indication that it's weakening and it's going to give up any of its slaves that it's taken from all around the world, let alone give up the Jews. And so God gives them this promise. They're going to come back. All of the physical circumstances look like it'll never happen. And so God now in verse 12 begins to speak to them about the one who has given them the promise that they will come back into the land. He gives them a description of himself. No promise is any greater or any sure than the person who gives the promise. And God understands that. Sometimes we lose sight of his greatness because of the greatness of the trial that we find ourselves in. So we need him to remind us of who he is, of his power. He's made the promise, and he is uniquely able to fulfill that promise. So it's not only something that applies to the Jews 2,700 years ago, but you can be in a circumstance here tonight 
where you are facing something and you are in the proverbial Babylon. It looks like, yes, I'm claiming this this promise of God, but I don't see how in the world it's ever going to come to pass. And this passage is for you as God describes his greatness, the greatness of the one who had given them his promises and has given us his promises uh, in the word. He stands behind his word. He describes himself as the one who has measured the waters, that is the waters, all of the seas and lakes and bodies of waters and the hollow of his hand. It just, he said, all right, he's creating the heavens and the earth. He says, we'll use about this much water. He's pretty big. I don't know if you ever fly across the Atlantic or the Pacific on a plane. Uh, sometimes I've done that. And I thought, that's a big body of water. And sometimes you fly over it at night. You say, boy, if we crash, I'm in trouble. Such a tremendous grasp of the obvious. And so, but I mean, these huge bodies of water fit into the hollow of his hand. He measured heaven with a span. A span in the ancient world was the distance from the end of your thumb to the little finger, end of the little finger. And so that's what the heavens are to him. We look at it and we have astrophysicists who study it, people that are fascinated by the heavens and the planets and all. And it seems to us as we look at it and we measure its size in terms of light years that it's almost infinite in size. No, 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 no. It fits right between the thumb and the end of the little finger of God. It isn't infinite at all. This is how big God is. And he calculated the dust of the earth. So he had the seas, but here's the dirt in a measure. And uh, he weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. So we put something on a balance in a store or something, and we can get about like five pounds of apples up into it. God said, I'll take all of the mountains, put them up on the scale. In other words, just speaking of Uh, his greatness. He created the universe. It was completely effortless for him to do so. That's the God who loves us. And that's the God who makes promises to us. And that's the God who's going to deliver us into heaven one day. And that's the God that one day we're going to see uh, face to face and be in his glory. Jesus face to face in the presence of the Father as well. He goes on to speak about how the fact that he describes himself as being completely wise. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught God anything? Well, you and I may counsel God. Uh, I suspect that most of us have. God, have you ever thought about this related to that trial? Or do you know, if you just gave me those seven numbers on the scratcher or whatever, I don't even know how all that stuff works and all, but I've given it some thought, haven't I? So if you just gave me those lottery numbers, I mean, the lotteries now, it's up to 270 million or what, and, and I would tithe off it, God. That's how big and generous I am. You know, I'd only hold 250 million for myself. But sometimes we counsel God about how to get out of our problems. I'll confess that I have been his counselor at times, but I'll also confess that I never added anything to his wisdom. <laughs> I've never added anything to his, uh, that helped him out. He never, I've never heard, been talked to him like that. And he goes, hmm, never, not once. That's an interesting thought. Hadn't thought of that. He says, what's that noise? It sounds like uh, an alarm going off somewhere. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. He is infinitely wise and knowing. He said, Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And so he's greater than all of the nations in the world. Today the world is very anxious about various nations in the world. What is Iran doing with its nuclear uh, uh, Capacities. What is uh, Saudi Arabia going to do with its oil? What is Russia thinking in terms of taking over the Ukraine? And the fact that oil has plunged down now to, what, $50 or something or headed that way a, 
uh, a barrel, and, and some are saying that the oil will never again uh, hit $100 a barrel. The whole Russian economy is based upon energy and oil. Have we backed Putin into a corner where now he's going to be uh, facing the bankruptcy of his country and so head into an expansionist mode and join with the Islamic nations in an invasion of Israel, all of which God says is going to happen through some scenario or another, whether it's this one we don't know. But people are anxious about the nations of the world. God's not anxious about any of them at all. He's greater than all of the nations. They're all just a drop in the bucket, and he's sovereign over all of the nations of the world. And he does what he wants with them, moves them in this direction and that direction as he is unfolding his plan and his purposes for the world. Lebanon, famous for its cedar forests, its uh, the woods in the, that it had. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. If you took all of the forests of Lebanon to put together, put it in a pile, and then brought together all of the beasts um, that were necessary in order to offer as a sacrifice uh, to the Lord, take all of the wood and then all of the beasts of Lebanon, offer them as an offering, burn offering to the Lord, and even all of that uh, would that worship wouldn't be worthy of what it is uh, that he deserves and uh, that uh, the worship is greater than all of the worship that the whole world could ever offer to him. All the nations before him are as nothing and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, so talking about these men that make idols. The goldsmith, he overspreads uh, it, these idols with gold, if you've got the money to do it. In the ancient world, the silversmith, they cast silver uh, chains. Whoever can't afford the gold or the silver, too impoverished to do that, well, he chooses a tree that will not rot. So he's going to choose cedar or something like that, redwood. And then he makes uh, for himself a skilled, uh, seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare then a carved image uh, that is an idol that will Will not totter, and so God is. What God is saying concerning Himself is He is incomparable related to the idols of the world and what other men worship. There's no comparison between the two. There's a gulf that is infinite between God and everything else that people worship in uh, the world. And so, kind of the folly of idolatry here. Have you not known, he said? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that he who sits above the circle of the earth... Now, that's an interesting phrase, the circle of the earth. How long ago in Western culture and society did we still believe that the earth was flat? Not that long ago in terms of human history. Here Isaiah writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 2,700 years ago and talks about the fact that the earth is round, that the earth is a circle. And so he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and he makes the judges of the earth Useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. Uh, when he will also blow on them, they will wither, and the whirlpool will take them, whirlwind will take them away like the stubble. And so he's greater than all of the mighty in the world, all of the kings, all of the princes, verse 23, all of the judges, he's greater than all. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things. Speaking about at night looking up into the heavens and seeing all of the stars. And so he is the controller of the stars, the creator of the stars. To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall, uh, to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts, the stars, by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his mind. 
might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. And so he is the great creator of the stars. He is the namer of the stars. And that's interesting, isn't it? He names every star. And he doesn't name them uh, Bob or Bill. Wonderful names. If that's your name, I'm not putting it down. But he names them names like uh, Orion or Arcturus or Pleiades. He, try remembering a few million of those names, odd names like that. He remembers, he names them, he remembers their names, and he's the one that holds them in their orbit. Why don't we have continually planets and stars and meteors and all of these things plunging into the earth and why isn't the universe utter chaos because God created it he's named the stars and the reason that every single day we uh, the sun goes down at night and we can look up into the sky and see every star is still in its place is because God keeps it there well, what kind of a God? I mean, that's the God that's giving promises uh, to us. That's the God that stands behind um, his word to us. He goes on to kind of uh, further uh, comfort the uh, uh, children of Israel and, uh, and, 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 and with the fact that he cares for his people in verse 27. He said, why do you say, O Jacob? And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. And so here they are, they're in a trial. Maybe you've been in this place even as a Christian, where the circumstances are so hard, the trial is so great, it is so deep, that you begin to doubt God, you begin to question God, and you begin to think, listen, the only f- way that I can explain the fact that God would allow me into a trial like this and then allow me to stay for any length of time in a trial like this, it must mean, number one, that he doesn't know that I'm in the trial. It must mean that he's limited in his knowledge. Or number two, he lacks the power to deliver me. And it's easy if you've never been in a trial like that to think, oh, these silly, unspiritual, nothing kind of people. Then you find yourself in a trial like that and you find yourself wondering about it. You know better than that because the Word of God says what it says. But the thoughts come in. There's no way that God would allow this unless He doesn't know about it or He's too powerless to deliver me from my trial. And that's what they were feeling like. And so God then responds to his children who are feeling that kind of emotion and being tempted with those kind of lies. And he said, have you not known and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. In other words, you're in the trial that you're in, but you're not in it because I lack the power to deliver you out of it. His understanding is unsearchable. You're in the trial, not because I don't know that you're in the trial. And he says, then goes on to say, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. So I don't know about you, but when I get in one of those kind of trials, the way that I want God to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his knowledge of my situation is to get me out of this situation. That's the only expression of God's power that I want to hear about. But God comes in here in this situation and he reminds us that there is another expression of his power and his wisdom that we don't often think of, at least not first off in that place. And that is that sometimes he delivers us from the trial because of his power, but sometimes he will leave us in the trial because in, in his knowledge, in his wisdom of our situation and what he is producing in our life through the trial, he knows the trial is what is best for us, even if it's hard for us. And so God demonstrates his power not by taking us out of the trial, but by giving us his power to go through the trial. They're both expressions of his power, but we tend to like the one over the other. But how many of you in this room tonight 
have been through a trial where there is no explanation for you getting through it except God gave you the power to get through it. Just a show of hands. How many of you have been in a trial? Up high so everybody can see. You've been in that kind of a trial. There you are, a witness to the passage that sometimes in his wisdom and his work for our lives, he will use his power to deliver us. We're thankful for that. But how many in this room, a great proportion of us in this room, we are recipients of what he declares here, and that is, if I don't deliver you in that way, it is because I'm going to share my power with you, I'm going to give it to you as you, as you need, and I'm going to get you through that trial by virtue of my power. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. When you're in those kind of trials, it isn't like, I'm going to huff, and I'm going to puff, and I'm going to blow this trial down. You know you don't have the strength for it. And you know, if I'm going to get through this, God, you're going to have to give me your strength and your power. Because even the strength of youth, I mean, youth is at its best in, in life. And, um, and even the strongest within the human condition, they shall faint and be weary in certain trials and difficulty. Even the young men in their prime shall utterly fail. But... Those who wait on the Lord, and the idea is to wait in trusting upon the Lord, trusting on his word, trusting in him, they shall renew their strength. And how is our strength renewed? God renews our strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God will give us in these trials as he takes us through them. He's going to keep his promise either by delivering us from the trial or giving us the power to walk through it. And if we need power to soar like an eagle, then he will give us that power. If the power that is needed in the particular trial or circumstance that we're in is to run and not be weary, then he will give us that kind of strength. Or if the great need is to walk and not faint, then he will supply us as well. And most of us, as we've already seen in this room, we have experienced his faithfulness to this promise. Now, in chapter 41, the Lord puts the Gentile, and the idea is the unbelieving Gentile nations, and their gods on trial uh, in a court of law. And so, in this chapter, God is presented as the only one who can predict future events and control future events, and all of the nations of the world are summoned to testify uh, to the power of their gods while Jehovah declares uh, his deity in contrast to them. So he calls upon uh, all of the world, bring forth your idols, every one of you that worships something other than me. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. And coastlands refers to the lands that are away from Israel, uh, Gentile lands. And let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. And so God says, let's figure out who's uh, who is God in this world? Uh, you, the, all of the things that the Gentile world was worshiping, is worshiping today, uh, contrary to God, other than God, uh, and, and then you have the worship of God himself. Not everybody can be right. God says he's the only God that exists. There's none other than him. And so he is to be worshipped. All of these other people worship all of these other things. They can't both be right. So God says, come on, let's not continue on in this condition. Let's all come together and let's um, figure out what God is true, what God is worthy of being worshipped. And so he calls all of these uh, nations together uh, and calls upon them to demonstrate their uh, control over uh, the future. The question that he poses to them essentially is who controls human nature uh, or human history rather? And he declares in verse 2 who raised up one from the east and who in righteousness called him to his feet? What he is doing here now, God is through Isaiah, is he is speaking about uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus. 
and that he is going to raise up in the Middle East. He is going to raise up this king by the name of Cyrus who is going to come into human history. He is going to conquer all of the Middle East and establish what we know now as the Medo-Persian Empire. He names this man, this king, by name in chapter 45, verse 1. But he's taking his time getting there to this place. So God says, all right, let's find out who deserves to be called God. And the only God that deserves to be called God is one who can speak of the future before it comes to pass with 100% accuracy. So he begins to speak of this one who is going to be raised up from the east and uh, and the Medo-Persian Empire came out of the east from from Israel when it conquered the world uh, who in righteousness called him, God called Cyrus uh, to his feet. He raised them up. Who gave, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, ha, ha, as driven stubble before his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it? God speaks of this king that he's going to raise up. And he does it here 150 years before uh, Cyrus is even born. And uh, God prophesies of his coming on the scene. And you notice in verse 2 and in verse 3, all of these words that are in the past tense. Verse 2, raised, uh, called, uh, made, uh, driven, past tense, pursued, verse 3, passed, all of them in the past tense. In other words, God says, I am speaking of this man to come 170 years in the future to conquer all of the Middle Eastern world, and it is so sure because I've spoken it, I'm going to declare it as if it already has happened. And, of course, we know historically that Cyrus did come on the scene just as God prophesied that he would, and he ended up conquering uh, all of the known world in the Middle East at that time. So he says, who is the one who has spoken of this king to come and who has performed it, who has done it, verse 4, calling the generations from the beginning? What God is able to speak of the future before it comes to pass? And then he gives the answer to his question, I, the Lord, am the first and and with the last I am he. So we don't know if there's a pause there where he said, who performed, uh, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. And then here are all of these false gods before him, the nations before him. None of them can even make a peep. Uh, none of them can declare, even say a word, let alone prophesy concerning the future. None of the people that worship these gods could tell anyone what was going to happen in human history in 170 years. And so there was only one answer in terms of who the God is that is able to do that, and that is the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible. They didn't want to say that, and so God then answers uh, his own question there in that, and then in, in doing it, declaring that as a result of that, he is uniquely qualified to be worshipped by all of the world. And so he, uh, in verse 5, he, there's further prophecy of God declares what the response then of the Gentile world will be when Cyrus comes onto the scene in human history and begins to conquer all of the Middle East. What should have happened when Cyrus comes on the scene? Now remember, this book is written not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. And so in Isaiah chapter 45, God names the king by the name of Cyrus. As soon as Cyrus began to enlarge his kingdom... 170 years later, even the Gentile world ought to have said, now we've heard something about that related to the Jewish God and the Jewish scriptures. And when Cyrus came on the scene in human history, the logical response would have been, wow, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews prophesied of this. Let's throw away all of our idols that are... have." that are nothing in comparison to him, and let's begin to follow this God. But they didn't do that. They doubled down 
on their idols. And it's so funny how people will do that. Not funny in a funny way, but in an odd way. Uh, Their idols get exposed by life, exposed by God, and still they will not turn uh, to the Lord. So the proper response would have been, wow, okay, Cyrus is on the scene. He's taking over the entire part of the world. God knew about it ahead of time. This is his servant. Let's all become worshipers of uh, God. But instead, what they decided to do was to create bigger and better idols. (laughs) All right. Cyrus is big. We've never seen anything like him before. His military, his genius, his uh, diplomatic skills. And he was really quite a man, actually, in history. And so what do we need to do? What we need to do is the gods that we worship now, they're not going to be able to stand up to this guy. So we need new, improved gods. And so they set themselves now to creating new idols And when the coastlands, the Gentiles, saw this Cyrus coming and they feared, the ends of the earth were afraid, they drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbors, and they said to his brother, be of good courage. And so they all go to the foundries, and they start to make these new idols out of metal and all, and they're encouraging others, one another. This one's going to be really good. This is going to be a really good idol. This is going to be, uh, you know, take care of us. So they're encouraging themselves. Yeah, this is the path we need to take. We need to find another God to worship and uh, create him here. And uh, it's always a bad thing when you create your own God. And so the craftsmen, they encourage then the goldsmith. Uh, he who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil. Yes, this is great. This is a beautiful God that we're creating. This is the answer to all of our problems. And then somebody said, it's ready for soldering. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. My God is ready for soldering. I used to do stained glass a million years ago when I could still dunk. And you'd put all that glass out and you'd put the foil around the edges or you'd put the lead around it and then you'd take the soldering iron and then you would finish it off. And stained glass laid out on a table before it's been soldered, is very, very fragile. But the stained glass is almost as fragile after you've soldered it. It says something bad about a God that it needs to be soldered. Just saying. But this is how irrational idolatry can sometimes be. And then they fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Those of you who have Christmas trees at Christmas time, what are you doing, you pagans? Just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. But you've got to put a stand on those trees, don't you? Otherwise, what happens? They totter and they might fall. And so here you are, here they are, All of these things, we're having to brace our God and this God that we're going to trust in taking care of us against uh, Cyrus. And uh, we have to brace it up and with pegs and all in order that it might not totter, in order that it might not fall over. Now, that's a really bad thing when you have to support your God in the middle of your greatest trial. The reason that we have a God is so that he will take care of us in the midst of our greatest trial and keep us from falling over. And that's the God that we have. But again, it's how irrational what people will worship and um, and give their uh, allegiance to and their worship to in the face of all of the problems in the world. I would think if you lived on planet Earth today, In light of all of the problems that are going on in the world today, now a lot of people are just burying their heads. I don't blame them. I'm just about to myself. I can't hear anymore. I can't know anymore than I already know. 
But you would think that for a thinking person living in the world today, in light of how combustible the world is and how fragile and dangerous the world is, that everyone would be running to God. You would think that every church in the world would have four and five services every Sunday morning to accommodate the crowd. But it's not happening. It's not happening. People, oh, it, it, their idols and their gods and what they trust in almost have to be pried out of their hands in order to turn them to God. And sometimes even the greatest logic as God is dealing with them with incredible sanctified logic here. And yet God said, no, even with the prophetic evidence within my word to the veracity and the truthfulness of the word of God and the divine inspiration of God, they will not turn from their idols to the true and the living God. It's amazing. When I was a young boy, uh, for a period, junior high, I, for a period of time, we were raised in a little Valley Bible church. And for whatever reason, that church, it ultimately aligned itself with the Plymouth Brethren denomination. But they had a bunch of prophecy nuts in that church. And I, I say it affectionately. There was a one guy by the name of Randall, and he would get up and teach. It was a rotating pulpit. It was all of the different elders would teach at different times, and he'd get up, and it was always a prophecy kind of update on things. But we, I learned the Bible and the prophetic element of the Word of God, and I remember when I became really committed my life to the Lord in 1980. I don't know if I was saved or I wasn't. I know I was saved after 1980. Something real happened there, but. In, but when I returned to the scriptures and then began to read about the, the prophetic side of the word of God as a foundation, as a basis for our faith, I thought, why in the world isn't everybody a Christian? And here I am, how many years since 1980? I don't have enough hands, toes, fingers and toes to count. And yet they don't come. It's fascinating. But he said, but you, verse 8, Israel, are my servant. Now he's going to tell Israel, you don't need to fear the future the way the rest of the world fears the future because your God is not the same as their God's. Sure, read the headlines, read the newspaper articles, read the forecasts, be as informed as you want as a Christian. Just understand that the God that you serve makes you different from everyone else in the world. And he is different from all of the other gods in the world. So if you read about the condition of the world and it produces fear in your heart, then you are reading those reports as if you shared the gods of the people that have written those reports. Your God is different. Your God is so in control of human history that as I mentioned this morning, you and I wake up every single morning to a geopolitical condition of the world that is an exact uh, replica of God's description of what the world will be like geopolitically at the time of the rapture of the church. And we could go on to speak about it being in the same place in terms of what God said the world will be like spiritually in the last days. All of it is set up and all of it is to testify to us, listen, things are tough, things are scary in the natural, but I have a God who prophesied of this all way ahead of time, and he's given me promises that he knew he was going to keep because none of this history has surprised him at all. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so... God is looking down through history. This prophecy speaks most specifically uh, to the 
um, uh, uh, children of Israel and northern southern kingdom both actually on things. They're in the Babylonian captivity and God reassures them that despite their failure and their failure was epic and I don't look down on them. There isn't We've all failed in our, our relationship with God. We all know what it means to fail and fall short and be in the doghouse and all of it and to feel like God is through with me. He's never going to use me again. Or this puts me on the wrong side of him. Now I'm never going to know his grace or his love the way that I did. They had given up hope and began to think that God was through with them as a result of their sin. And God strongly encouraged them that he was not through with them at all, but that there was a future for them not to be dismayed, but that he would strengthen and help and uphold them. He said, Behold all those who are incensed against you, speaking now to the Jews in their captivity. And again, uh, the Jews had been uh, defeated, the northern kingdom of Israel, by Assyria. Uh, when Babylon took the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Babylon, the Babylonian army conquered uh, Judah and Jerusalem three times. Nebuchadnezzar, by the time he was so upset with the Jews, by the time he came in to conquer it a third time, this is not a patient man, and they kept rebelling against him. And he says, all right, don't leave anything standing. I'm not coming back here a fourth time. So he really, really uh, wiped them, them out. And here they are. Uh, they've faced the Assyrians. They've faced the Babylonians. They've faced so many enemies in their history. The Jews have anti-Semitism all the way through human history. And God says, behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. Where's the Assyrian Empire today? Where's the Babylonian Empire today? Where's the Third Reich today? Where are the Jews today? They're in their land. Where's the British Empire today? And a very strong case can be made that the British Empire began to fall apart based upon their abuse of the Jews during World War II and following World War II when they would not allow, because of their blockade upon Israel, they would not allow during the war and after the war Jews who were trying to flee for their lives from Europe to the only safe place they knew, and that was Israel. And because the Brit England got on the wrong side of God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and the, the uh, uh, British Empire began to fall apart until now the British Empire is Britain itself. And so you look at all of these enemies of, uh, of the children of Israel all down through history. They shall be as nothing. They shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. We read about all about uh, militant Islam. We read about Islam today, their desire to destroy the Jews, to uh, wipe them out, drive them into the sea. Uh, relax. Uh, they're not going to be any more successful than Hitler was. And they're in the same league, by the way. They're not going to be any more successful than anyone else has been in the destruction of the Jews. Again, God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you. you. I will curse those who curse you. It's interesting that the Bible teaches that in the last days, Israel will stand alone against the whole world. We will leave our support as a nation of Israel, the level of support that we have had as a nation for Israel. The time will come, it's happening now, whether we turn back from it under a new administration or not, I don't know. But one day they will stand alone, only having God as their defense. You look at this, it's just demonic, isn't it? The Hatred of the Jews. Look at the persecution of the Jews in Europe and really all around the world. They go on about their business. They're good citizens wherever they live for the most part, as much as any people are and maybe more so. And yet this, this has to be a demonic desire to destroy uh, the Jews. But it will not be successful. And you look at the Muslim world and all of the things that they're doing. I'm not saying that they are not 
um, creating a great crisis and a great danger to the Jews. It's real, and, and they face it every single day, but they have absolutely no hope of destroying these people. And they are not just up against the Jews. So you have the Muslim nations looking at Hezbollah and the uh, Islamic Brotherhood and all, and they're counting all of their weaponry and how many soldiers and all of this kind of thing as if they are up against the modern weaponry of, of Israel, as if that's their greatest problem. That's not their greatest problem. They are up against God. And so as you read all of your newspapers and you read about uh, the world turning against the Jews and concentrating to fight against the Jews and destroy them, uh, God's promises here is that they'll be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. And you shall seek them and not find them. And those who contended with you, uh, those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. In the, in the Hebrew, it's less than nothing. And here's the reason. For is a reason word. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Oh, boy, don't you hate being called a worm? I don't know how many of you were ever called a worm growing up. It's not that flattering, is it? You pick up a worm, how much of a backbone does a worm have? Not much. I just kind of... How much strength does a worm have? There's not any danger at all. It's one of the most vulnerable creatures on the face of the planet. Israel is very vulnerable in the world, and they were at that time. And God said, fear not, you worm, Jacob, even though you are powerless in the face of all that you face in the world, you men of Israel, I will help you. Think about that. You're reading that, and here is God, and you know that about yourself. And God said, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new uh, threshing, threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff, speaking of their destruction of their enemies. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. I think there was, in Germany, it was the Kaiser who said uh, to uh, uh, Bismarck and, and said to him, what is the evidence, the greatest evidence for the existence of God? And he said, the nation of Israel. It exists because of uh, the, uh, and the Jewish people. Actually, it's the Jewish people is what he said. And, it, and they exist as a people because God is with them. He's for them. He's not done with them yet. He still has a plan uh, to bring them to Christ and, and as a part of his end time scenario. God then um, speaks of, uh, here is Israel in verse 17. They're suffering in their uh, captivity. And, uh, and God says, I'm going to return you to uh, the land of Israel and the land that you're going to come to back into Canaan, back to Jerusalem. It's not going to be in the desolate condition that it was in when you were carried off as captive. I'm going to turn it uh, into a paradise uh, for your sake. The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. And so uh, uh, God here, he said that he would bless the land uh, for their sake upon their return and make it a beautiful land. And it is a beautiful land. The far fulfillment of all of this, of course, is in uh, the millennial reign when the, the, it will... Uh, 
be like never before in history, even following the great tribulation period, God will make it into Jesus himself, into something that is astonishingly beautiful. We come here now in verse 21, the passage that we looked at this morning in our Bible study. And God calls all of the nations of the world. He calls, actually here he calls all of the Jews together. Uh, and, and, and they were uh, knee-deep in idolatry by this time. It was uh, dominant among the Jews. They were going to temple. They were uh, worshiping on Saturday. Uh, all of the church services were going on, but in their private lives they were worshiping uh, idols, worshiping other gods. And so God says, listen, bring all of your gods out of their closets. Let's not pretend that you're not doing this. Let's be uh, adults about all of this. Bring out all of your gods and let's put them to a test. And if your gods can meet the test, then fine, we'll all worship your gods. If I am the only one that can, uh, you know, meet the standards of the test, pass the test, then you ought to worship me. And so he calls them all forward into kind of this big courtroom to have this God test, this God showdown. And here's the test that God proposed. Let them bring forth to these idols. He said, let them... Uh, tell us a little bit and show us about what's going to happen concerning the future. Uh, let them, and so that was his first thing. Is it, no, nobody ought to follow a God who cannot tell the future with 100% accuracy. The second part of the test is, he said, let them show the former things what they were. They ought to be able to tell us about human history that we wouldn't be able to otherwise understand apart from God, how all of this was created, how we got here, why men are sinners and fallen, etc., etc. things that only God could know and reveal to us. He said, let them tell us these things that we may consider them, consider what they speak to us in regard to this, and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come, show us the things that are come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. He said, yes, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, as he calls upon these gods that children of Israel were worshiping, none of them could speak, none of them could tell the future, none of them could speak authoritatively concerning the former things. And so God takes in their failure and he passes his verdict upon them. He said, indeed, you are nothing, your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. So what we worship in life is a reflection upon ourselves as well. And so God condemned them in their failure, and then God passes his own test, again speaking of Cyrus, who he would bring into human history, again 170 years down the road, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, that is the east, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as through mortar, as the potter treads clay. I'm raising up, in terms of human history, there's a king that's coming that is going to just pass through the world and conquer everything that uh, you see here in the Middle East. And uh, amazing prophecy, Assyria was the world-ruling empire at the time. Uh, They would be followed by Babylon. Babylon would be conquered by Cyrus. And so God is speaking of things that are way down the line uh, here prophetically. Amazing prophecy in the Bible. And then God declared the response of uh, the people. You would think he'd have this God showdown with his own people, the Jews, and that after this great demonstration of the powerlessness of their own idols and the greatness of God passing his own test, that they would all just pile their gods in a heap and crush them and throw them away and become, uh, with all your heart, all your mind, all, all your soul and all your strength, followers of God. But they didn't do that. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears uh, your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one 
who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. And their molded images are wind and confusion. In other words, these false gods simply confuse uh, uh, people concerning uh, who is the true and the living God. And so, despite this great demonstration on God's part, to the, even his own people, they clung on to their gods and they doubled down on them. And as a result, they would then go into uh, the Babylonian uh, captivity. Can't say that God didn't put uh, everything in between them and that judgment that he possibly could in order to get them to turn. But they were unwilling to do so. Only 70 years in Babylon would cure them of their idolatry. They wouldn't listen to God's word and turn from it. And so God says, all right, we can do it the easy way, which is the way God preferred. Listen to his voice and turn and repent of their idolatry. Or we can do it the hard way. God was up to both of them. He could do either one, was willing to. And they, but because they wouldn't turn from their idolatry, their failure to worship God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, God says, all right, then the Babylonian captivity will cure you of your idolatry. And interestingly enough, it did. Uh, the Jews, by the time they came out of Babylon, uh, they weren't through having their problems. <laughs> uh, we can name some of them, uh, the Pharisees. Uh, as what they ultimately became, the Sadducees. So they were still going to have their problems, but the Babylonian captivity cured the Jews of their idolatry. Never again would they engage in the kind of idolatry they were engaging in in those days. And so what was the cure? God said, you like idols? You don't like me? You think life is so hard under me and life is so good under idols? I'll send you to the land of idols. I'll send you to Babylon, who worshipped anything and everything. I'll let you go there until you got idols coming out of your nose. You can stuff yourself with idols. And then tell me about the life that you have there in comparison to the life that you had with me. And it took 70 years, but it cured them. Uh, just as a backslide. Uh, a backslide that does what it needs to do in any of our lives will always cure us of whatever it is that we left God for. God says, you want that? I'll give it to you. You can have it till it comes out of your noses. And then you can take a look one day when you come to your senses and you realize the life that you have now versus the life that you once had with me and then decide which one you want to have again. And the children of Israel, by the time that happened, they were longing to have even a chance at rediscovering uh, the life that God had once blessed them with. And the beautiful thing about the whole story is that God had the grace to restore them, even as God has the grace to restore any backslider today and to return us once we've learned our lessons. And sometimes we learn them the hard way, but no lesson or no trial or season or something like that in life is a complete waste. Even mistakes we make in life, as long as we learn something from them. And so when a person says, I've learned my lesson, I'm coming back to God, I won't show, ask for a show of hands. For how many of us in this room and where there was a place where you went back, you got smarter than God, you were going to form your own kind of Christianity, a little different from God. Yeah, I put in my appearance at church, but my heart, my, my life, the, what I am in private, that's going in a completely different direction. And God lets you get your fill of it, and you've come back. And for the rest of your life, you have walked with the Lord, lesson learned. He is so gracious. He doesn't have to do that. But he did it with them, and he does it with us, and we give him praise, and we give him thanks for that kind of grace and that kind of love and that kind of commitment uh, to our lives and his promise that what he has begun in us, uh, he will bring to completion. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Lord, we love everything that we learn about you. There's nothing about you that we discover in your word that makes us cringe or makes us embarrassed or makes us uh, think we've made a mistake and who we're worshiping. We love everything about you. And we thank you for the wonderful revelation of these chapters tonight of your heart and of your holiness and of your grace, Lord. There isn't anything we could ever put all of our heads together and and think up, up something that we would say, this would be an improvement upon you. You are perfect, Lord, and we are so blessed and so thankful to know you and to love you and to be able to walk with you. And we thank you tonight for the privilege in the name of the one who made the sacrifice to make all of it possible in Jesus' name. Thank you for Jesus tonight, Father. Amen.